So we started the book of Hebrews last week. I encouraged, invited, challenged you to read Hebrews along with us as we go through this series. So I'm not gonna do a show of hands because we're not, we're not here to you know, point anybody out, but in your heart, raise your hand if you're reading Hebrews with us. And then raise two hands in your heart, Nick, um, if you're also reading Leviticus along with us, that's two hands up. So, all right, great. So um, if you're not, that's no problem. You can start anytime. You can start today. You can start tomorrow morning and read through Hebrews. And, uh, you know, if you're extra um, interested, read Leviticus. Leviticus is a very important book that is a little dry, but it will help explain all of what's going on in Hebrews that he's going to talk about here in the next few weeks. Uh, so just as a reminder, uh, this is a letter that was written to Jewish Christians living uh, in Italy, most likely, uh, who were struggling to pay the high cost of following Jesus. In their culture, there was a high cost to following Jesus. Uh, they, they could be persecuted in a lot of different ways, socially and financially and um, so other, did I say socially? I did. Okay, so because of the high cost, many people were actually walking away from their faith. They were letting go of their faith and drifting away or walking away. And so this letter is written really as a sermon to encourage these people to hold on tight to their faith. So that's, that's where we started last week. We're gonna jump into chapter two. Uh, before we do, I, I wanna point out uh, just really quickly, if you're reading along, you've read some things in chapter one and two about angels and about Jesus being higher than angels. I wanna take one minute just to kind of address that before we jump into chapter two. Maybe you've had questions. Um, why, what is he talking about with angels and why, why is he making such a big deal out of this? Um, a lot of the letters in the New Testament are written to help clarify the true gospel so that people know when false gospels are trying to get into the church or into the minds of believers. And so this was an idea that was out there that um, Jewish Christians were susceptible to when it came to angels, that, that they, for, um, they, they would think that the, on, the only way we can actually connect to God is through angels. God is so far above us. He's so beyond uh, what human beings really are capable of that we, we can't actually go to God directly and so they had the priestly system, and so they, the priests were mediators, but then after that kind of all fell apart when the temple was destroyed, then there was this, this resurgence in this belief that angels are the ones who can go from, from heaven to earth. They must be the way that we connect to God. We, we've got to go through angels. But the Hebrews writer wants to clarify, you know what? Angels are great. He's going to talk about angels, high, high view of angels, but we don't need angels to go to God. We have Jesus. That's, that's exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead was he made it possible for us, as the Hebrews writer will say, to approach the throne of grace with confidence. So we can go directly to God through Jesus. Uh, and we don't need angels. And that's kind of what he's addressing there in chapter one and a little bit here in chapter two. So just a point of clarification in case you had that question. So let's just jump right in uh, to chapter two. Verse one, we'll see if that'll stay there. Nope, it's not going to. Um, so we're gonna have the verses on the screen. If you see anything that's underlined, those are your lines and you are to read those aloud uh, in unison and in the language of your choice. I usually say in English, but I feel like that's uh, kind of limiting. So whatever language you choose, here we go. We must pay the most careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that That's pretty, that's pretty weak, friends. Uh, we, will, we will do better next time. No, let's start over. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, <laughs> to what we have heard, so that... Right on. 
For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Uh, So this chapter begins with uh, an encouragement, pay careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. What, What is it that we have heard? What is the message that they're supposed to be paying careful attention to? Well, he references a message that came through angels. And and there was some serious consequences for people who disobeyed or neglected or rejected that message that came through angels. What message was that? What message came through the angels? Well, uh, the first century uh, believers recognized, and uh, there was a lot of Jewish thought that kind of indicated they believed that the law of Moses was actually communicated to Moses through Angels. Angels don't show up in in the book of Exodus when God is giving Moses the law, but but Paul mentions it in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 3, and Stephen is like giving this uh, big sermon in Acts chapter 7, and both of them say that we think that the message of the law came through angels. And so the Hebrews writer here is probably referring to the the law, the instructions to God's people for how to be the people of God. And he says, hey, you know how highly we think of the law, right? We know that Anyone who disobeys or rejects the law pays a a harsh consequence. So how much more should we pay attention to the message of salvation, the message that came through Jesus, that Jesus brings a message of salvation that is higher than the message that came through the angels to Moses, that's doing something new and different. And therefore, we've got to pay more attention to it because it is from Jesus, So how did Jesus bring the message of salvation? What did he say? What did he do that communicated the message of salvation? He taught and he lived out this message of salvation. So when he first comes on the scene, begins to preach, uh, Matthew sums up his kind of preaching, uh, you know, theme as uh, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the message of salvation. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's saying God is here. God wants to be with you. God wants to be with his people, always has. And if you repent, you can now be a part of the kingdom of God and participate in what he's doing and receive the peace and joy that come from being in his kingdom. That's the message Jesus preached. And then he lived that out and he brought the kingdom, as Andy was saying earlier, he brought healing and hope and peace and grace and kindness to people. And then he went to the cross for us and he rose from the dead. And this is all the message of salvation. So the Hebrews writer, the preacher is saying, hey, let's, let's pay very careful attention to the message that we heard because it's even greater than the one that came to Moses through the angels. It's, it's even greater than that. So we've got, to, we've got to hold on to that so that we don't drift away, okay? So we're gonna talk a little bit more about what salvation really means. I want you to think about this question. How would you describe salvation? If salvation is something that's been an important part of your journey to this point, how would you describe your your understanding of salvation to, to someone else, maybe someone who doesn't uh, have the same views or same beliefs as you. How would you describe it? Think about that as we read through uh, in this, this next passage. Again, underlined passages are yours. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You... 
and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So where does the message of salvation begin? Uh, We often start with this concept. We are sinners in need of a savior. That's where we often begin the message of salvation. The Hebrews writer begins at a different place. He begins with what we were before we became sinners in need of a savior. That humanity wasn't created as sinners in need of a savior. We are created to be crowned with glory and honor. This is from Psalm 8, by the way, which is a great uh, tie-in here. If you want to go back and read Psalm 8, it, it ties in really well with what the preacher is saying here. So Psalm 8, we were created to be crowned with glory and honor. And that's, part, that's the beginning of the message of salvation. It begins with this question, who, who were we intended to be from the beginning? And then we have to ask the next question, well, who, who are we now? If, if that's not what we see, if we don't see human beings, like if you look at all of humanity, kind of the scope of humanity, does it look like we're living as people who are crowned with glory and honor? Not so much, Right? I mean, if, if so, we wouldn't see all the evil and injustice and oppression and bad drivers. And I mean, I mean this just is bad out there. We are not living as humanity, as people crowned with glory and honor. But the writer says that Jesus has earned that spot. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. So he has gone before us to show us what is possible, where we could be. Yeah, this as humanity, this is who we are. We are slaves to sin and death. That's who we are as humanity. Now, I was very gently and kindly corrected um, by one of our uh, members after first service to clarify to you that if you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin and death, okay? That's not who you are currently. But as humanity, who we are, that after the fall, Adam and Eve sinned and, and sin and death come into the world. Uh, humanity becomes slaves to sin and death. That's our inheritance from Adam and Eve. You can thank them later. Uh, but that's, that's who we are without Christ. So that's, we were made to be crowned with glory and honor. We are slaves to sin and death. So the next question um, is how can we be changed? How can we get back? Can we, can we, can we ever be people crowned with glory and honor? Uh, so let's read uh, chapter two, verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation. All right, some of you are a little late to that party. It's okay. Um, You'll have another chance. So he's saying here that uh, we have a pioneer of our salvation. A pioneer is someone who goes where no one has gone before, right? Um, Some of you are singing in the Star Trek you know, theme song now, but that's, he was the trailblazer, the one who went before us. Remember, we were created to be crowned with glory and honor, but Jesus is the one who actually achieves that. He's the one who gets there ahead of us and makes the way possible for us to be crowned with glory and honor. And then it says he was made perfect through what he suffered. So, all right, hang on. I thought Jesus was already perfect, right? Wasn't he? Well, we always think of perfect in a moral sense. Like perfect means I never do anything wrong. I always do what's good, right? And yes, in that sense, Jesus was always perfect. There's never a time when he was immoral or when he sinned. 
But that's not the sense that the author is using perfect here. He's talking more about a completed purpose, something that has fulfilled its purpose, has been made complete, it's perfect in that sense, okay? So um, I have, on occasion, made the perfect hamburger. I need you to know this, it's really important. If you need the perfect hamburger, I've done it. I can't always do it, but I have done it. Uh, we use, I use some special secret seasonings and things, and it has to be grilled perfectly, and it has to have bacon on it, like the thick bacon, not the thin bacon, the thick bacon and cheddar cheese. So I have made the perfect hamburger, and I can, I can make that hamburger, I can set it on a plate and look at it and just be in awe of this. But it's not complete until I eat it, right? I mean, what's the point of having a, a beautiful hamburger out there if I if I don't get to eat it. It fulfills its purpose at the end when I get to enjoy that perfect hamburger, right? So in this, I know that's this kind of silly analogy, but in the same sense, Jesus, was, his purpose was completed when he suffered, when he suffered. You think, well, why, why did Jesus have to suffer? Have you ever struggled with that? Have you ever, you, you watch the movie like The Passion of the Christ or you read through the crucifixion story and you get this understanding of everything that Jesus went through leading up to the cross and the cross itself. And you think, why? Why all of this? It seems like too much. It seems extreme and it's heartbreaking. And it's hard, it's hard to watch. It's hard to take in. It's hard to make sense of. Why did Jesus suffer? Well, the author here says that it's, this is what completed Jesus's purpose. That our salvation, the way that we go from people who are slaves to sin and death to being crowned with glory and honor is through the suffering and death of Jesus. This is the path that we walk in order to be the people that God created us to be. He was made complete through his suffering. So why did he suffer? Let's talk about that a little bit. And uh, what you're going to see here is a theme of family that I think we don't always put suffering and family together. Well, maybe you do. I don't know. Um, But that this is a theme that we tie together spiritually that's not always obvious, but I, this is really important. I, I want you to see this. So let's go to verse 11. Are you ready? Okay, good. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the... So Jesus is... To call them brothers and sisters. Ooh, I love that. Jesus is not embarrassed by you. How many of you have been embarrassed by yourself? You're like... I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. I hope no one saw that. I hope no one heard that. I hope no one remembers that. We're we're embarrassed to be related to ourselves. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? There's so much peace and security and comfort in knowing that at our worst, when when we are guilty and ashamed and embarrassed, he's not ashamed. I mean, you, if you're a parent, you know what that's like, right? It doesn't matter what your, your kids do things that embarrass you, right? And vice versa, correct? But we're not ashamed to call them our children. It doesn't change who they are, how much we love them. I love that. So anyway, that's kind of a side uh, note that I just think is beautiful. But here's, here's what he's saying, is that the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy are of the same family. Now, why is this family language sort of tagged onto this conversation about Jesus being made complete through suffering? Well, here's why. It was Jesus's suffering that allowed him to identify with us so that we have this thing in common that unites us as a family. Isn't it it difficult to, to really count on someone who doesn't know what you've been through? 
right? Isn't it really difficult to hear advice or get input from somebody that doesn't really know you and know what you've been through, know where you come from, know all the struggles that you've had, that you're having? And Jesus knows. He knows what it's like to suffer so that he can identify with you and me, so that he can call us brothers and sisters. He always intended for us to be his family. God, if you read through the Old Testament, this language is all over the place. God has always intended for his people to be his family. He wasn't just looking for a nation of servants. He was looking for a family. And that language is all over the Old Testament. And the author quotes some of that in Hebrews chapter two. And you see that popping up. I just This story of redemption throughout scripture is just shockingly clear about how desperately God wants to be with his people and call us his children. Remember why all of this is being written to the Hebrews. These people are paying a high cost for following Jesus, so high that some of them are walking away. They're drifting from their faith. They're saying it's not worth it. And he just comes back again and again. But to just remember, remember what God went through to get you to this point. Remember how much he loves you. Remember that he calls you sons and daughters. Don't let go, hold on tight. All right, let's continue. We're gonna see more of this. Uh, Jesus identifying with us, uh, which is what we would call empathy in the next few verses, 14 through 18. Are you ready? Yes, good, great. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's, descendants, for this reason he had to be made like them, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. Ooh, let's say that again. One more time. Listen. Oh, yeah, sorry. You're right. I Just listen to this, though. Like, Who can really get you? Who really gets you? Who really knows why you are the way that you are? Why you do the things that you do? Who who can understand what it's like to go through what you've been through? Now say it again, those three words. Man, Jesus is able. He gets you. He understands you because he chose to suffer. He, He can identify with us in our suffering. Being a human is difficult, isn't it? And it would be impossible to, to, be, to be on the road to being crowned with glory and honor if there wasn't someone who could understand what it's like to go through what we've been through. Jesus chooses to identify with us so that we can be connected to him, so that he can fulfill his purpose. He's gonna become a merciful and faithful high priest. We'll talk about the high priest stuff later. But it's because Jesus chooses to empathize with us in this way, to be able to look at us. Has anybody ever uh, heard you express something that was painful and said, I know how you feel, and your thought and maybe what came out of your mouth was, no, you don't. You don't know how I feel. Jesus does. He's able. He can help us in a way that no one else can help us. No no self-help book or YouTube video or TED Talk or philosophy that's out there. 
Because he chose to suffer, he identifies with us. Again, this is, this is the preacher saying, hold on tight, don't let go, get a grip on Jesus. I know it's hard. I know there are a lot of challenges in the world that make it difficult to be a Jesus-centered person, to be a Jesus-centered community in this world. But hold on tight. He gets you. He understands you. He calls you brothers and sisters without any smirking or snarkiness or sarcasm. He actually likes you. Hold on tight, because you can't get that anywhere. All right, let's circle back to chapter two, verse one. This is where we started, and uh, this is where we're gonna end. We must pay, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And we have got to pay careful attention to this gospel that Jesus came and taught, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. God wants to be close to you. God wants you in his family, God has always pursued us. We often think of it in terms of God wants us to pursue him, right? And there's some truth to that. You know, seek him and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart from Jeremiah 29. That's true. God has also always been pursuing us. When we think of pursuing God, we think, well, I have to be better. I gotta be holier. I gotta be more righteous. I gotta stop doing bad things and start doing good things. That's how I pursue God. And maybe one day I'll be good enough that he'll actually let me into his family, Oh no, that is not what's happening at all. God has always been pursuing us. That Jesus became lower than the angels and he suffered for us because God is pursuing relationship with us. So that's the message that we have to be, pay careful attention to so that we do not drift away. We've got to have an anchor. Um, uh, about 20 years ago or so, Sarah and I uh, went to uh, Virginia, took a trip there. We were at the Chesapeake Bay. You remember this? We went kayaking on the Chesapeake Bay uh, on this uh, flat top tandem kayak. Uh, we rented it for like, I don't know, we had like two hours or something to go paddle around. And so we were out there just paddling around, having a good time. It was a beautiful day, sunshine and everything. And, um, and we paddled for about an hour. We're starting to get a little tired and we're thinking, all right, maybe it's time to, time to head back. And so we start uh, looking for the spot that we need to get back to to turn the kayak back in. And we can't see it. Like it's not where it should be. <laughs> it is gone. I mean, we couldn't see it anywhere. We had to sort of evaluate like, okay, which direction have we been drifting? Because now we have to go back that way and get back to where we started. So it took us an hour to paddle with the current out to wherever we were. It took us two hours to paddle back against the current. And by that time we were miserable, exhausted, mad, like what, at ourselves mostly, because we just didn't think about the current. Because when you're drifting, you don't really notice that you're drifting, do you? I mean, it's just happening. You're not choosing to drift, it's just happening. And for most of us, it feels kind of harmless. It doesn't feel dangerous to drift. But what happens is when we get far away from our starting point, and we find that it's really hard to get back. It's so hard to get back that some people just give up and don't try. That's why we, we have got to establish some anchor points. We've got to create some systems, processes, some plan in our life to help us recognize when we're drifting because it's hard to see in yourself, isn't it? Uh, one way I think that it's helpful for us to see when we're drifting is um, to create some anchor points in our minds and, and measure the distance. So I'm skipping to the second one. We'll come back to the first one. Um, establish an anchor point and measure the distance. Here's what I mean by an anchor point. Think about what you're like when you're at your Jesus-centered best. 
What kind of person are you when you're at your Jesus-centered best? For me, when I'm, when I'm at my Jesus-centered best, some things that are different about me is that I'm generous, I am patient, I'm gentle. Man, when I'm at my Jesus-centered best, I am generous, patient, and gentle. So that's my anchor point. So I know that whenever I'm not being generous or patient or gentle, I have drifted. I have drifted. Because that's, that's not who I am when I'm really Jesus-centered. And so we can establish those anchor points and maybe we can recognize, but friends, it's really hard to recognize in yourself. So that's why we circle back to the first um, step here, which is we've got to ask somebody who knows us well. And, you, you know, this is difficult because what we're asking is, tell me the ways that you see in me that are not like Jesus. How many of you really want to hear the answer to that question <laughs> on a regular basis? Oh, it's hard to hear sometimes because if you've got people that you trust to be honest with you, what you're gonna hear back is, you know what, Adam? You have not been uh, very generous with your, your time and your attention. You have not been very patient with the people around you. You've not been gentle in the, the way that you communicate. Like, oh, I don't really wanna hear that, but I need to hear it because I don't see it. When I'm drifting, I, I don't notice. So I need somebody in my life and I have these people. God's blessed me with people in my life I can sit down with and sometimes I don't even have to ask. They just volunteer. That's, that's even harder. They're like, hey, all right, we got to talk, man. You're being really selfish. You're being unkind. You're being really harsh. Oh, I don't want to hear that. But man, I need it. Don't you? So I hope that you have those people in your life. And if you don't, I hope that you'll find one. I hope that maybe somebody will grab you on the way out today and say, hey, you know, can, can we get together? Can we talk? Can we help each other so that we know when we're drifting? So knowing is only half the battle. How do we, what do we do when we realize that we're drifting? We have to get a grip on Jesus. This is where we started um, last week. We've got to get a grip on Jesus. We've got to strengthen our grip. You guys remember we talked about strengthening your grip. You got wrist flexors and wrist extensor muscles, and those have to work in unison together and balance together to strengthen your grip. Same deal with knowing Jesus and responding to Jesus. Those are our steps. Those are our exercises for getting a grip on Jesus. We've got to know Jesus well. We've got to learn who he really is from scripture. And then we've got to respond to him appropriately. If he really is who the Bible says he is, how should we respond to him? And so that's why we have these, uh, some of you have seen these flying around today. Um, that was not the plan, but it happens. Um, so we want you to grab one of these on the way out. It's just a way for you to remember uh, to strengthen your grip on Jesus this week by knowing him well. You're gonna read scripture. You're gonna, you can read Hebrews with us and that will help you know Jesus well and then respond to him appropriately. Uh, just do what he says to do. Treat him as though he really is Lord and Savior, right? So we want everybody to grab one of these on the way out. Stephen, you can have this one. And um, we didn't even plan that. And he's a Cubs fan and he caught it. It's, it's amazing. So... Uh, thank you so much for being here. Would you stand? We're gonna close with a word of prayer and I wanna invite you to pray a prayer that um, is uncomfortable. Are we okay with uncomfortable? Can we do that? Yeah, we can. Um, that's, that's where growth really happens when we allow ourselves to get uncomfortable. So here's the uncomfortable prayer. God, um, would you put somebody in my life who will tell me how I've drifted. Or give me the courage to ask someone who will be honest with me. How have I drifted? 
And help me to receive that with humility and with just a desire to strengthen my grip. God, would you, would you convict me through your spirit, through a, through a Jesus follower in my life to know when I've drifted and how I've drifted? Convict me and welcome me back. And he will. Would you pray that prayer with me this morning? Father, thank you for this message of salvation that came through Jesus. Thank you that he chose to suffer, to identify with us. Thank you that you have pursued us as your family, that you call us sons and daughters. We get to call Jesus our brother and each other brothers and sisters. God, this is just beautiful, the way that you've set all this up. But it's difficult. God, you know that the forces of this world that your enemy is trying to draw us away from you all the time. So I pray that we can strengthen our grip on Jesus. And we can help each other do that by helping each other see where we've drifted. And would you help us to receive that with humility? And when we, when we are asked to do that for someone else, that we do it with gentleness and kindness. And God, in all of this, you just make us into the people that you created us to be crowned with glory and honor so people see who you really are. God, we want everyone to know that Jesus is pursuing them with his love. Would you use us as we grow together? In Christ's name we pray, amen.